0: Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah, Old Testament book of Isaiah. We're continuing on in our Christmas series called Light Has Come. Uh, our text was already read for us this morning, Isaiah 9, 1-7. was read beautifully, uh, so I'm not going to read it right away. I'm going to pray and we'll jump right into it, but Isaiah 9, uh, verses 1-7. to Let me pray and then we'll, we'll get going. We'll get moving through that. Uh, Father, thank you. God, thank you for your incredible grace to us that we can gather here as a church family, that we can we can worship you, that we can celebrate this time of year the gift of your son. Thank you. God, thank you for the grace upon grace that we we get to experience even in this ministry as we, we can gather in safety, we can gather without fear of repercussion or persecution, those sorts of things. But Lord, I pray this morning as we open your word, as we sit under it, that you would just, you would just help us in these. The other side of that, which, which can be apathy. God, help us with that. Help us as we, as we look at these titles of Jesus. Uh, help us with, with Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As we unpack these this morning. Lord, would you please apply them to our hearts, apply them to our lives. Help us to live in light of these truths. Lord, we need you. We need the power of your spirit uh, to, to fill us. We want to we walk with you in this life, not simply give lip service to that. And so, Lord, please make us pleasing to you. May our response to your word today be exactly the right one. And Lord, would you lead all those who are here who don't yet know you, would you lead them uh, to to come to understand this great gospel and this offer of salvation and life that you've extended by the power uh, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we love you, Lord. It's in your name. Amen. Now, over the years here at Westside, I've been super honest about my feelings toward the Christmas season. Maybe a little bit too honest at times, it's gotten me into some trouble uh, over the years. But it's not like I'm a Grinch or anything like that. It's not that I, you know, I I enjoy gifts and gingerbread as much as the next guy. I I like the lights. It's all fine. It's It's all great. I've got no problems with it. The problem for me... I can't help but feel every time as the calendar rolls around this part of the year, I can't help but feel that it tends to bring out the worst in certain people, specifically Christians. let Let me explain what I mean by that. This time of year, you and I are led into the no man's land between two totally different and competing narratives, like two totally different stories. On the one hand, we have the story of consumption and consumerism. Right? That's a story that our cultures bought into hook, line, and sinker. We're all the way there. We're all about that. And this time of year, it just goes nuts. Right? We're all about this consumption and consumerism. Then on the other side, the other story is this thing that Christians like to call the true meaning of Christmas. Right, And when Christians just say the true meaning of Christmas, everyone else just sort of rolls their eyes and goes, okay, here we go again. Right, But by the true meaning of Christmas, what we mean is that God entered our world to take away our sins. That's what we're talking about. The true meaning of Christmas is that God emptied himself for us. See, we talk about God emptying himself, and that's the heartbeat of this season, even while we spend our time, our energy, our resources, filling ourselves up with all the stuff money can buy. Like, do you see the difficulty in that? See, this time, this these religious and cultural narratives, they don't mix at all, and yet we're working really, really hard to try to hold them together, to try to make them make sense with each other, and they just don't. Now, am I saying that it's wrong or bad, you know, to to work hard to hold these things together. No, I'm not saying that. In fact, I think it's probably important for us living in the culture that we do in order to hold them together. What I am saying, and the reason I bring it up year after year is because it's very, very dangerous unless we're aware of it. It's dangerous because the religion that God most regularly condemns in the pages of the Bible, like from cover to cover, the religion he most regularly condemns is a religion of the lips, but not the life. It's a religion that says, okay, look, here's the list of the things that I believe. These are the things that I hold to, while the way I live my life tells a completely different story. So the issue I have with Christmas is not with Christmas at all. It's not even with this holiday at all. It's not with this month at all. It's it's a bigger issue. It's the issue of the human heart, and it's not a new issue. 2,800 years ago, the prophet Isaiah was rebuking the people of Judah for the very same thing. See, this was a people who who had been able to get comfortable saying, look, this is who we are in theory. This is what God's doing in theory, even though the way that we live our lives, the story that we're living out is completely different. It's why one scholar, speaking of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah says this, the descendants of Abraham no longer trusted the promises of God, aligning themselves instead with the promises and fears of this world. Westside, the words, the words we use can be incredibly deceptive. Gathering around with your family Christmas morning, taking five minutes to read the incarnation story and checking the box can be incredibly deceptive. It's the way we live our lives that evidences which story we believe. Regardless of what we say, how we live is what matters ultimately. In the nation of Judah, the nation of Judah hadn't lived like the people of God for a very long time. Which is why, as we come to the book of Isaiah... Which is why things get so incredibly dark. Look at this picture Isaiah paints in Isaiah chapter 8 of where the people are going. These people that are living caught between two different stories. He says this is where they're headed. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry... And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is where the functional rejection of God goes, regardless of what we say, regardless of whether or not we can recite the stories at the right time of the year. But it's right at this moment that something happens. It's right at this moment that something changes. And if you're sitting here going, man, this is already really heavy. This is depressing. It's supposed to be Christmas time. What's, what's he doing? Hang with me because it's right here. That something shocking and inexplicable happens. As Isaiah paints this picture of darkness for these people caught between two different narratives, two different stories, he immediately moves it to the side, and the very next verse, chapter 9, verse 1, we read this. Have a look at it with me in your Bibles. We read, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The people who walked in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So somehow, we move just now from anguish to joy, from darkness to light. So obvious question, what happened? How did this happen? The people didn't change. We just went from a dark prophecy to an incredibly bright one. What happened? Drop down to verse 6 where we have one of the most well-known prophecies of all time. Here's what happened for to us. A son is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So, so here's what's driving me this morning. Today, I want to do whatever we can do together to remove every speck of the lie that we can have it both ways. I want to remove every speck of the lie that we can, it's simply enough just to honor God with our lips, to say here's the true meaning of our lives and what we're living out, even though the way we're living is completely different. I want to get rid of that. I want to destroy that. And the reason why I want to do that is because these four titles, these four titles that are given to Jesus make it so incredibly clear that coming to him, coming to him cannot happen in word only. Coming to him cannot happen in thought only. If he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, if he is each of those things, then our lives will be radically different. The way we live will change radically when we come to him. So next few minutes, all we're going to do is just briefly look at each of these four titles. We can't dive in as deeply as I would love to. We could do a week on each of the four, definitely. But we can't dive in as, each, as deep as I want to. But I just want us to skim the surface and see how, first of all, how beautiful and life-changing these are. And then I also want us to see why it is that we, we reject them. Like we like them. We like the way they sound at Christmas. They sound really good at Christmas. But when it comes to actually living out of these, when it comes to actually applying these to the day-in, day-out of our lives why is it that we continue to reject these? So that's where we're going. And I'm hoping that if you and I focus on Jesus together, that we can have a Christmas season this year where we're, we're more full of worship. And I mean, like real worship, worship, you know, that just uh, takes over all of us. We're full of worship and the Holy Spirit, more full of those than we are of eggnog. That would sort of be the goal for today, okay? And I love eggnog. I'm all about eggnog. I like it. As long as you can get it dairy-free, I'm happy. Uh, so let's, let's jump in, which is really hard to find. Anyways, let's not get into that. So let's jump in. What does it mean that Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor? Uh, for, for me, in, in my life, I've been really blessed to have lots of great counselors uh, over, over, the, over the past uh, several decades. Growing up, my parents... Uh, We had kind of an open, open policy. We could talk about anything and everything. Grandparents, when I got a little bit older, I had these men that surrounded me in my life that would take me under their wing and counsel me. I had one pastor who allowed me just to shadow him day in, day out for for a couple of years, which was an amazing gift. Uh, To me, great counselors. The one piece of advice, though, that I remember really specifically... Didn't come from any of them. Uh, one of these pieces of advice I just looked back on and was just so helpful to me it actually came from a financial advisor. So, so before uh, Melissa and I got married, uh, we, we decided you know the best thing to do to start our life together would be to buy a home. It's obviously the best thing to do, we thought. And so, and so we, we, we found a place, we got the mortgage, you know, we picked out our cabinets, it was brand new, so we got to pick all that stuff, it was fun for her. Uh, we put all that stuff out, we, you know, we did all this stuff, signed all the papers, and then we met with the financial advisor. So we're sitting down, and I'll never forget, I'll never forget the way my stomach dropped when he looked across the table at me, dead in the eyes, and said, Matt, don't do it, you're in way over your head. My stomach just sank. Took my bride to be out. I said, we need to go for a drive. Went for a drive. And I said, we're not doing it. We're not going to start. We're not going to start this way. We're not going to do this. Uh, She was mad. I was mad. We, We were very, very excited about this. But a year later... A year later, when I wound up in the hospital, so a lot of you know that story, I wound up in the hospital, that building continued to to sit 50% unsold, and then there was a massive fire that burnt half of it down, and our unit would have been right in the middle of the smoke damage, like not enough to get the full insurance payout, just all the smoke damage. We were incredibly thankful for that advice. Counselors, Westside, are great gifts to us. They're great gifts because we don't always see straight. We get so caught up in our hopes and our dreams and we get so inward turned and can become so self-consumed that we need help. We need someone to step in and show us which way to go, how to live. And in fact, the Bible recommends that we seek out counselors. That's why Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there's no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Now notice two things about that verse. First of all, seeking counsel is a good thing. But second, we're not very good at it. We're just not. Even if you have the best counselors in the world, we're not very good at it. It's why we need an abundance of them. See, at some point, no matter who you're getting counsel from, it's always an issue of the blind leading the blind to some degree. So the best we can do as human beings is gather as many as we can and look for patterns in what they're telling us. It's the best we can do. And the reason that's the best we can do is because, as Jeremiah 79 tells the heart Is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, here's what we need to know. To understand this gift of a wonderful counselor, we first need to understand that the Bible says you're blind. Blind as a bat. That there is no way for you to see objectively and perfectly. That you can't, your perspective is too limited. You don't see what's going on. God's ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. According to the Bible, we can't actually see straight. And we don't just know this from the Bible. We know it from experience as well. Like even if you're not a Christian, or you don't believe the Bible. We've experienced this. In 1890, so quite a while ago, uh, there was an article run in Popular Science Monthly which laid out two laws that they said governed human thinking. First law, we only see as much of the world as we're trained to see, equipped to see. Second law, we see, th- we see things not as they are, but as we are. And since then, like since, you know, the last hundred or whatever so years, since that article ran, these ideas have become really deeply entrenched in our belief about ourselves. In fact, our obviously limited perspective is the reason why so many people have given up on the idea of any discoverable objective truth whatsoever. Our modern philosophers love to tell us that there's no way for you to make an objective truth claim. You can't do it because you simply don't see straight. You just see things based on your own perceptions. Perceptions that have been clouded by experience and inexperience. Perceptions that have been clouded by the things that you've learned to love and the things that you've learned to hate. Perceptions that have been clouded by your unique hopes, fears, dreams, whatever. But your perceptions are yours. And so you see the world not as it is, but as you are. Now I'm telling you this, I'm starting this way because I want us to understand that regardless of how you come in here today, whether you're a Christian or not, both the Bible and the culture around us readily admit that we are blind. We are very ready to admit this. We admit it all the time. We cannot see straight. Which means we should be blind. Our ears should really perk up when it comes to this offer of a wonderful counselor, a divine counselor. Every one of us should be interested in Isaiah's movement from darkness in chapter 8 to light in chapter 9. As the Apostle John wrote in John 1, verse 4 In Jesus was life, and the life was the light. Of men, The light shines in the darkness and darkness does not overcome it. Look at, we see the image of blindness there. We live in the dark, but this wonderful counselor came to illuminate the world so we could see straight. Jesus came to take our blindness from us the word of truth. It's why later in Isaiah 30 we read that your teacher will not hide himself anymore but your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying this is the way walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. It's why Psalm 119 105 says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's why Isaiah 42 16 says and I will lead the blind. God says I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths they have not known I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do and I will not forsake them. When we talk about the birth of Jesus, we're talking about the moment that God offered to do away with human blindness once and for all. We're talking, Westside, about the moment that the light of God shone into our darkness. We're talking about the gift of a wonderful counselor so so you may feel you may come in here this morning you may feel somewhat lost you may feel like you're not exactly sure you know which way to go in your life or if you're where you're supposed to be or if you're who you're supposed to be or if things are shaping up the way that you know you really want them to ultimately you might feel lost confused or you might feel like you have it all together again either way the bible and the world for what it's worth says you're blind you don't see. But the gospel says Jesus came to give you sight. Not just any sight, His sight. The gospel says that Jesus wants you to look around and see the world that He does. He wants to be your counselor, He wants to guide you and show you which way to walk. God sent His Son so you would actually follow His lead. You know, he didn't send His Son. So that we could recite the story once a year and then move on living out the narratives of our culture. He didn't do that. He didn't send his son so we could just tack it on to whatever else we want to do. He sent his son so that we would actually follow his lead. This is why Jesus, by the way, sent the Holy Spirit to us. After he ascended, he promised, well, before he ascended, he promised to give to the Spirit. Then after he ascended, he sent him to us. Now we have this, this counselor, God himself within us, and we can hear his voice. But some of us today, we, we wonder, we get frustrated at why we don't hear the voice of God more often. If you're someone who wants to hear the voice of God, but you don't really hear it that readily, you need to know one thing. The voice of God, the voice of the Holy Spirit, he is speaking right now, but his voice is still and small. It's still and small. He actually allows all the other counselors of this world, all the other narratives, all the other stories, all the other voices to drown his out. He lets it happen. Because that still small voice of God's spirit, that divine counselor that's been made possible for us to walk with through the personal work of Jesus, that voice is only heard by those who who turn away from every other counselor and look only to Jesus. Jesus who silence every other voice so they can hear that still, small one. And when you do that, when you look to Jesus, when the voice of the Spirit of God becomes more important a more important counselor to you than anybody else in your life, when that happens, you will hear it. God promises you, when you seek Jesus with all your heart, you will find him. You will hear his voice clear as a bell saying, this is the way, walk in it. There's nothing more incredible in this life than that. Nothing. But Jesus isn't just called Wonderful Counselor. He's also called Mighty God. Now, it's pretty easy to understand for us why the gift of a counselor would be such a great gift. But what about a Mighty God? Well, to understand this one, we have to actually, we have to to look at another deeply embedded kind of illusion that we believe. We've already talked a little bit about the illusion of sight. You know, we, we like to believe that we can see things very accurately, but now, in order to understand what it means that Jesus is mighty God, we have to deal with the illusion of control. See, we love, we love to tell ourselves that we're in control. We love to imagine that we're self sufficient, self made, self sustaining, and yet we do this even though the data of our experience, like everything that we know to be true in life, tells us the opposite right i mean i mean it's only a matter of time it's only a matter of time until an illness happens or a car accident happens or we lose a we lose a loved one it's only a matter of time before a natural disaster happens or kids rebel or a spouse cheats right whatever it is we we have our control taken from us over and over and over again in this life but we pretend That's not the case. We suppress reality as much as we possibly can. Why? Because we're terrified. Because we're terrified of what it means if we're not in control. We're terrified of where that puts us. So we just pretend. We live the illusion. We buy the lie that we have control in this life. What I want us to understand, this gift of mighty God means you can be now and forever liberated, freed from that fear. You don't have to walk in that a single second longer. Yes, it is terrifying to admit that we don't have control until, until Jesus came. When Jesus came, he, he, he made possible the unthinkable. Not just to admit that we don't have control, but to rest in our lack of control. Not just to rest, not just to find peace there, but to actually find joy there. To stand on the control of someone else. On the control of this mighty God. Now how is this possible that we can admit that we don't have control. And then find peace and rest and joy. How is that possible? It's possible because when this mighty God came for us. When he emptied himself. He gave us a promise. He said look there are limits to the way that I'm going to use my perfectly sovereign power. I'm going to attach a promise to the use of every ounce of my power. The promise is that I will use my power only for your ultimate good, for the ultimate good of those who put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. Why Paul in Romans eight twenty eight could say, we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The good being spoken of here doesn't mean we're going to get the house or the spouse or the car or the life or whatever it is that we've imagined for ourselves it's far 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 better than that it means that as the wonderful counselor directs us the mighty god in turn will use his power to give us give us life beyond anything we've ever imagined we're talking about glorification with jesus See, there's no way to look at the first advent of Jesus without being immediately reminded of the second. What Jesus started when he came, he will finish when he comes again. There's no way to read the Christmas story about Jesus with being, about Jesus being born without being faced with the fact that he's coming again but the second advent, the one that we are waiting for today, right? The one that we're waiting for now, just like the people of God waited for back then, the one that we, we are waiting for now, it will only be good news for those who've given up, been freed from the illusion of control. Man, and I get I get that that's way easier said than done. Uh, a few weeks ago, not long ago, yeah, a few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I were out for dinner, and it was one of those dinners where, where, you, uh, where we were you know, in the restaurant, and about halfway through, I'm like, I wish we weren't in the restaurant right now, because this is getting way too deep, and I just want to be at home, not kind of you know, trying to, stop talking when the wait staff come over and that sort of thing. Things were getting super deep. We were talking about life and the future and how we believe God's leading us and where God's leading us, all that kind of stuff. And confession time, I was angry. I was getting frustrated with what we were talking about. I was just, I was frustrated with where we were going. I was frustrated with what happened. I was frustrated with what God's doing. All of it, just frustrated. And before I could even think, the words came out of my mouth. I just blurted out, I feel like my life is being taken from me. And then it hit me like a brick wall. That's exactly what we ask for all the time. Like that's exactly what it means to follow Jesus. It means we give him our lives. We give him the things we've imagined for ourselves. We give him everything. And then in turn, we don't just get his life, but we get him. And if we're doing it right, I think... And we should feel like our lives are being taken from us as frustrating as that is. Because he is reworking something that he wants to do in us instead. Please don't miss this this year. Please don't miss that mighty God, mighty God, the sovereign of the universe, was born, became an infant, born dependent with no control, but trusting his father. Please hear this. There is no way for a follower of this mighty God to claim to have more control in this life than he did. If you're someone who's trusted in your ability, your power, the strength you have to get things done in this life, if that's where you get your peace, you're not following Jesus. Not yet. Not now. Not in this moment. No one receives the grace of this mighty God as long as they're still pretending to be one themselves. That's just not how it works. We come to him as children. That's why Jesus said, only those who come to me like one of these, like one of these little children, dependent, weak, needy, realizing their lack of control and looking to him for his. That's the only way. There's no salvation without it. So Jesus, West Side, wonderful counselor, Mighty God and third everlasting Father. Now I don't think there's probably a more loaded term, more loaded title for for God than Father these days. I think you'd be hard pressed to find one. Uh, here's what I know. You know, a lot of us have had difficult fathers, um, bad experiences with that. What I know is, is that we cannot even begin to understand what it means that God is Father if we start by looking at the shadow of fatherhood in our world. We just can't. It, won't, it'll, it will be forever tainted by what we see around us. We have to begin with God. Now in January, we're very excited about a series we're going to be doing, uh, walking through the first few chapters of, of Genesis. We're calling it Eden. Can't wait for that. One of the first things we'll see is God is creator. Right? God creates, but he didn't just create stuff. He created people, image bearer. And he didn't, just, he, didn't, he didn't just create people so he could have sort of like an ant farm that keeps him amused. He could just kind of watch kind of how things play out in this ant farm. No, he created us, image bears, and he gave himself to us, which means the very first thing. It means that God is our father. It means an act of self-giving love. That's where he starts. That's where his fatherhood begins. When we talk about God as father, we're talking about a father who never leaves never neglects, never runs away, never hides, never quits, never abandons. Having that kind of father west side radically changes the lives of his children. In Jesus, God doesn't just promise us, promise to guide us and to use his power for good. He promises to adopt us. He promises, promises us to make us his own. See, there's no manipulation in this whatsoever. There's no strong-arming in the gospel whatsoever. There's no forcing anyone into anything whatsoever. God sends his son, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and he says, come. All who are weak, heavy laden, all those who need a father, come to me, I'll make you my own. That's the gospel. So much more than just a short story. But let's keep ramping it up because there's more here yet. As we come to Jesus, not only do we have this father who adopts us, we're given a family too. A family who loves us. Westside, the fatherhood of God is what binds the church together. It's what holds us together. The whole family of God comes together unified and bound up in the everlasting father. Not just a father, but an everlasting father. Even for those here who had great families and awesome dads, like you'd never trade them for anything ever in the world, it still didn't last, right? It still doesn't doesn't, doesn't continue to be fulfilling for you after all these years, but God's an everlasting father, and he gives us an eternal family brothers and sisters. Walking with Jesus means playing our part in the family, using our gifts for the sake of the family, pouring ourselves out in love for each other, laying our lives down in service for each other. And the, 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 the story of culture is an individualistic story of our culture, an individualistic story. And, and the scary thing is that often we bring this into the church and we bring this into our understanding of the gospel. and We think, okay, this is about you know, me and him, it's an individualistic pursuit, period. I want to come in. I want to go. I want to be about me. I want to be focused on me. I'm going to apply some lessons here and there to my life, but I'm not going to let people in. I'm not actually going to be part of the family. You've not understood what it means that God is your everlasting father. And please, please hear this as well. I totally understand that. I totally get it. Man, our culture, it teaches us not to value family, but to value independence. As soon as I was old enough to leave, you know, I used to pride myself because, you know, I was working at the age of 12. I was buying my own shoes, buying my own lunches, all that stuff. I was just, I ran a skate park back then, and I was just, that's what I was doing. I was just, I was, I was trying to get independent as fast as I possibly could. And then as soon as the time came and I could move out, I was gone. I love my family. I have a great family, but I wanted independence. And it's been very hard for me. It's been hard for me personally to learn this lesson. It's been hard for me to to understand what it means that I actually have a family. And that means my boundaries have to go. That means the lines I've drawn around myself to keep myself not only safe but comfortable, they have to go. It's been a very difficult one for me. So if you're coming from that kind of a place, just again, believe me when I say I understand. If you want, man, call me on the phone anytime. time. We can complain about it together. Hopefully we can find somebody uh, that will gospel us, give us the gospel, rebuke us for our sin. But I get it. But if this is the gift on the table... If this is a gift on the table and that's why we resist the, the everlasting Father, then we need to understand that, that God has no intention, no intention of staying on the periphery of our lives. The only way, the only way to keep your walk with Jesus, an in individualistic pursuit, is to shut off the voice of God. Is to is to cut off the whole wonderful counselor peace. And the mighty God peace. It's the only way. Because if you're going to walk with him, he he will bring the family into the middle. He will not stay on the periphery of your life. So Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the last title, Prince of Peace, is really a compilation of the first three. So we've seen that left to ourselves, on our own, without Jesus, we're blind. We can't see. We've seen that we're out of control. And we've seen that we have no eternal family. Meaning, left to ourselves, there should be, if this is true, if the Bible can be trusted, if this is true, if without Jesus we are that lost, then there is one thing that should mark our world almost more than anything else. Anxiety. People who are blind and have no one to lead them. People who have no control and people who have no family. It makes, it makes, it is perfectly reasonable. It makes all the sense in the world that these people would be full of anxiety. Is that not what we see when we look around our world? Do we not see a world riddled with anxiety today? Again, it's why Isaiah chapter 8 goes to such dark place. Anguish, distress. Because this is where we go when we reject functionally this gift that God came to give us. God sent his son light into darkness. He sent a wonderful counselor to lead us. He showed himself as a mighty God who loves us, an everlasting father who gives himself to us. And when we trade our sight for his, when we trade our lack of control for his perfect control, when we trade our isolation, which we love, for him, all the anxiety in the world is replaced by something else. Peace. Perfect peace. The boundaries that we've drawn around ourselves, trying to keep ourselves comfortable, trying to retain peace, they're robbing us of it. And when God takes them from us and gives us himself, gives us his life instead, perfect peace. But Jesus isn't just called peace. He's called the Prince of Peace. Why? Well, drop down to verse six with me. It's because we read that the government will rest on Jesus' shoulders And verse 7 says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. See, Jesus is the prince because there's a government. He's a prince because there's a kingdom. So let's think about this for a second. As Jesus reign spreads throughout the whole earth, it means that all people will be unified because we'll all be counseled by the very same wonderful counselor. Can you imagine that? Everybody, all nations, reading from the same script. Being led by the same wonderful counselor. As Jesus' reign spreads throughout the whole earth, it means that there will be no one left fighting for personal control because we'll all be trusting in the power of the same mighty God. Can you imagine that? I mean, this is the stuff we're after. We talk about community and life and peace and, and ending injustice, all these things. This is how we get it. It's all found in Jesus. As Jesus' reign spreads throughout the whole earth, it means that everyone will belong to the same family. Sons and daughters of the same everlasting father, the first time a family will ever exist without any dysfunction whatsoever. And it'll be made up by people from every tribe, language, and nation. This is the kingdom, it's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom that Jesus brought near when he was born as a baby. And this is the kingdom that will be ushered in once and for all when Jesus returns. And because this kingdom, this government, will expand forever, there is no greater title for Jesus than Prince of Peace. Peace will flood us. Right now, if you're a Christian, you have that peace in you. Because we, we have the first installment of our inheritance. We've got a down payment, a guarantee of what's coming by the Holy Spirit in us. And he gives us peace. Peace that passes understanding. But there is coming a day when the kingdom will spread throughout creation. And that peace will envelop us. That peace won't just be internal. It will be all around us. So peace is on the table today. The prince of peace offers himself to you today if you want peace if you're looking for peace and look to Jesus I mean this is the exhortation part of this look to Jesus come to Jesus put away the other voices follow Jesus whether you're a Christian already or not yet give your life to Jesus ask him to take your life from you and give you his and he will ask him to lead you and he will Seek him with all your heart and you will find him. You will hear the voice clear as a bell saying, This is the way, walk in it. That's the promise we celebrate at Christmas. This is the story. When we talk about the true meaning, this is what we're talking about. But this, this is impossible to give lip service to this. It's impossible to do this in word only or in thought only. It's impossible to make this five minutes on Christmas morning, and then the rest of the time live out of the other cultural story. It's impossible. Before we wrap up, there's one more aspect of all of this that I want to look at with you. One more question that I want to ask, very very quickly. How can we trust it? I mean, where does our assurance come from? How? Can we be confident enough in this to actually say, okay, Jesus, take my life, give me yours. I mean, how can we have that kind of confidence in this? The answer is at the end of verse seven, where Isaiah writes, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's talking about the coming kingdom. He says the zeal of God will do this. What you need to know about God today is that it is quite literally, he is zealous to give you these things. This is what he thinks about. This is what he's been planning for eternity past. This is why you're sitting in this room today, listening to some random guy talk to you about the name of Jesus. This is why, because he wants to give this to you, he's zealous. We don't use that word a lot. It, you know, I looked up some synonyms: eager, intense, passionate. He is eager that Jesus return and the kingdom spread. This government spread throughout all creation. He's eager for it. He is passionate for you to receive this. He's passionate for you to understand what it means that Jesus is wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. And Prince of Peace. So we talked about, as we started, we talked about uh, the, the, the danger for us of living between two competing stories. Two competing narratives. My hope as we go into time of response together now is that we'll choose the story that God's writing. Because here's the thing. God is zealous about finishing it. It won't be left three quarters of the way done. The story you're writing for yourself, you can't finish it. You don't have the ability. You might die before you even get halfway. Who knows? But you can't finish it anyways. And even if you do finish it, it's not going to last beyond you. So choose the story God's writing. Choose the one he's eager to finish. He is eager for Jesus to return. He is passionate about you discovering what it means that he has given you a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let's pray and then we'll respond all together. Father, gracious, gracious heavenly father, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the gift of grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the joy and the peace and the life that we can find in you. Thank you, God, that you override our stories, that, you, that when we give our lives to you when we seek you with all our hearts, that you just take and take and give us things that are better than anything we could possibly have ever imagined. Thank you. God, I pray for us. I, I pray for all of us as a church family today. I pray that you will wring every ounce of potential for the sake of your name and your kingdom out of us. Make us people, God, who pursue you so completely, so fully. Lord, that our lives become yours. That we give everything for the sake of knowing Christ. That we understand what Paul meant when he said to live as Christ and to die as gain. Father, I pray that this Christmas we would worship you. I pray that today we would, we would just have worship just that just permeates not only us but each other and then we go from here God later on and just bring this worship walking in the power of the spirit into the lives of the people we love and your your family grows your kingdom expands I pray for that. I ask for that. And I and I ask Lord now that just in, in, in a smaller way as we are in this room together God, some who know you some who don't But I pray, Father, that as we think on these things and as we respond to these things, that it would be a pleasing response to you. Help us to respond to your word well this morning. Give us the strength and the mercy that we need to do that and then lead us. Let your light shine in front of us. The darkness not overwhelm us. Be our refuge, Father. Preserve us, Father. We love you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.